It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, November 19th, 2021. From Chicago, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for being here every weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can get the podcast there. GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live, of course, as we air, including through our friends at Odyssey.com. A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Lots of options. On today's show, Brian Riedel will be here talking about Build Back Better, what the House Democrats voted for today, I was sort of rooting for them to all vote yes, because I think that there are some big, big poison pills in this bill that almost every last one of them, only one of them voted no. 220 of them voted yes, and we will walk through some of the toxicity with Brian Riedel, the policy and political attacks right themselves. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, he will be here with his analysis on the biggest story of the day. We'll get to that in just a moment. Also in our middle hour, Mark Hemingway on the industry known as so-called fact-checking. He's got a great piece out about it. Mark, who is Molly Hemingway's husband, will join us to walk us through his points. Jessica Tarloff, our friend, will also be here later in today's program. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats. Coronavirus cases in the United States, 47.5 million all in. Multiply that by, let's say, three or four. That's closer to the true number. The death toll from COVID in the United States, 767,419. The Dow tumbling today, currently down 260 points, trading at 35,611. 52 minutes to go in the trading day, and we will bring you an update at the top of the next hour. Well, I mentioned the biggest news of the day, and let's fire up another Fox News alert. After days of deliberations, multiple questions for the judge, a controversy involving an MSNBC employee or freelancer at the direction of MSNBC getting ticketed and cited for following the jury bus we covered that yesterday and all sorts of speculation about what was going to happen and as the deliberations dragged on and on people started to wonder could this be a hung jury in the kyle rittenhouse murder trial might they not have a unanimous verdict might this whole trial end in a mistrial and then what would come next what would the state decide to do what would the breakdown be of people who wanted to say guilty versus not guilty who wanted to convict versus acquit. So much speculation, all sorts of rumors swirling. And then, earlier this afternoon, the word came down. A verdict had been reached. And within minutes, 
the jury returned to the courtroom and delivered the verdict. There were five counts against Rittenhouse. He stood. I cannot imagine the feeling, not just for him, but anyone who's on trial. When you stand and the final judgment is being rendered by the jury, with his lawyers by his side, everyone holding their breath, not just in that courtroom, but really many people around the country, what had the jury concluded? And in cut 18, the announcement was read. The defendant will rise and face the jury and hearken to its verdicts. State of Wisconsin versus Kyle Rittenhouse. As to the first count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. And with that, Kyle Rittenhouse, the defendant, acquitted on all counts, collapsed to the floor, overcome with emotion. He was embraced by his team. There were reactions in the streets, his supporters cheering, others angry. Social media, of course, is lighting up with all sorts of hot takes, including absolutely deranged fulminations from people who wanted this kid convicted. I've given you my thoughts on this. I had followed the case somewhat. It was actually a really good, if you can believe it or not, months and months ago, a really good in-depth New York Times story about what happened. They really dug deep. And when I read that piece at the time, I said, oh, my gosh, I think what a lot of people have been saying publicly who seem to believe about this case uh, doesn't seem to be true. I think that there's a very strong self-defense approach here for Rittenhouse and his attorneys. And as the trial progressed, the scrutiny ramped up and up. People tuned in in huge numbers, including me. And as we talked about here on the show, we've had guests on. I've given a few of my own thoughts. And some of those thoughts depart from what a lot of conservatives believe. For example, I have said I don't think that Rittenhouse is a hero. I don't think he should have inserted himself into such a dangerous situation. A lot of conservatives disagree. They say, well, he has every right to be there. That's different than the judgment call. I think you can also not lionize someone while also dispassionately considering, is that person guilty of something that they've been accused of? And in this in this case, charged with by the state, a state, by the way, broadly speaking, that failed miserably. When it comes to maintaining law and order, the reason that a teenager like Kyle Rittenhouse felt compelled to get a gun and try to help maintain order with some other citizens in the streets is because the state absolutely and utterly failed to maintain order. 
Some of that's on the local officials, although they were overwhelmed. A lot of it is on the state officials. Governor Evers in the state of Wisconsin, they were very, I'd say, shy and slow to react because you remember back at that time, rioting for so-called racial justice was widely accepted by many on the left. And a lot of people were afraid to criticize it, even when it was flagrant law-breaking, violence, destruction. The state did not do its job. Some citizens decided to try to step up, and in the ensuing chaos, there was bloodshed. That is what happens when the state falls down on the job and allows this type of violence to be accepted and tolerated, as it was far too often throughout that entire summer. What mattered in this case, and I've said my piece about this young man, and if I were a parent, would I want him there? Absolutely not. Never. Was it good judgment in my mind? No. Is this someone that I'm going to treat as a hero? No. None of that matters. None of that matters. What matters in this case, or mattered because it's over, was whether or not he was guilty of the crimes that the state decided to charge him with. And I've said this too. I think the state decided to charge him with the crimes that they did out of pressure, political pressure, and fear, frankly, of exactly the people who were destroying the community of Kenosha in the first place. They were rioting for quote-unquote justice, and part of their quote-unquote justice understanding required Rittenhouse to be charged with murder. So that's what the state did, even though the facts did not support murder charges. They did it anyway. Maybe they were afraid of more rioting. This is the problem with a heckler's veto. When you allow the mob to call the shots and you start making decisions based on what the mob may or may not do, that is an abandonment of the rule of law. It is absolutely unacceptable. And yet, I think it was absolutely a factor here in the charging decisions. So what did you have? You had prosecutors with a very weak case based on the charges that they chose to pursue. Whatever their reasons, they made the call. And as the trial unfolded and the evidence came to light, it was crystal clear to me that the evidence was not there for murder. Right? They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty of murder. I would almost argue that the defense proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it was self-defense. It's part of the reason I was concerned that the deliberations took as long as they did. I figured that they would be thorough and maybe not come back in a matter of just a few hours. But as the days slipped by and Tuesday melted into Wednesday, melted into Thursday, all of a sudden it's Friday, the rumors and the whispers started to build about a mistrial. In the back of your mind, you're like, could they actually convict him? Could they actually come down with a guilty verdict after all of that? If you'd follow the trial, I guarantee you, you were probably having those same thoughts as I was. And you've got people, meanwhile, out there shouting. And the jury wasn't fully sequestered, right? They could go home. There was so much pressure. You had the media putting their thumb on the scale, setting aside the whole MSNBC jury van situation. You had all of these surreal attacks and pronouncements, racializing every 
element of this case, even though everyone involved, those who were shot and the shooter in this confrontation, they were all white. People have brought up the criminal past of the people who were shot, the child rapist, right? I've made my points about why that does not speak highly of the people who are on the street rioting. Obviously, these are not good people. In fact, some of these guys were very bad people. That also does not impact whether someone can come and just shoot them if it was murder. The question was, was he defending himself? What was the evidence? What were the facts of the case? And to me, the facts of the case were pretty obvious. It was not murder. There was a strong self-defense argument to be made, and they made it. People were mad at the judge for various reasons. I mean, this was a wild, political, uh, politicized and political, almost like festival of tribalism for a lot of people. Right? It's just a carnival of nonsense with a bunch of carnival barkers shouting misinformation at the top of their lungs. You've had elected Democrats, members of the media, people in pop culture. LeBron James comes to mind, for example, feeding into the problem. The Biden campaign had portrayed Rittenhouse back last year as a white supremacist based on nothing. I would not be surprised if Kyle Rittenhouse ends up making some money. If he's going to file some lawsuits for defamation, I would not be surprised at all. Like that Covington kid. I will say the president finally seemed to do the right thing today. He was asked about this. Joe Biden, I often don't defend him. I criticize him frequently for good reason. But I will applaud him for this. He was asked about the verdict. Here is his entire answer. Quote, I stand by what the jury has to say. The jury system works. End quote. That's it. He should stop right there. He's done enough. Thank you very much. But that's right. That's exactly right. So the shouting has only started. I hope very sincerely and earnestly and pray that there will not be, quote unquote, unrest, rioting, violence in response to this. The rioting and the violence is how this happened in the first place. And that rioting in particular, that violence in Kenosha, was based on other misinformation and lies. Fueled in particular by the hard left and the media. The cycle needs to end. Thank goodness, justice prevailed in this case. That is my firm belief. Without being a Rittenhouse stan or anything like that, based on the evidence... Based on the law, in my mind, the only just outcome of this trial, particularly on the murder charges, were acquittals. And that's exactly what we saw. Not guilty across the board on every count. And I would say for a lot of people who are enraged by that, I think it speaks to something beyond the evidence in the trial. And I'm glad that the jury focused on the actual evidence as opposed to all of the noise. That has to be the case under our system. And in this case, in my view, the system has worked. I'm Guy Benson. We've got so much to get to on the show today, including Andy McCarthy. 
in the next hour on all of this. You don't want to miss today's show. We are just getting started on this Friday from Chicago. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 213, the Build Back Better bill is passed. I'm Guy Benson. You can hear some of the chanting there, build back better, the applause. That from the House Democrats earlier today when they passed on party lines this reconciliation bill out of the lower chamber. It is dead on arrival, at least this bill as written in the Senate. Leader McConnell mentioned that yesterday. And I wonder how many of those Democrats will be cheering and chanting next year when they lose. Only one Democrat saw fit to vote against this bill. Every last one of them, aside from uh, Congressman Golden from Maine, every last one of them, including the so-called moderates, they voted for this thing and they own it. It's not going to become law, but they own every provision of what they just voted for. Because they voted to pass this into law, right? This is what the the purpose of this was for this bill to become law. They're going to try to slither away from it, I guarantee, parts of it. Oh, it wasn't the final version. They own all of it. Let me remind you what they just voted for today. Tax hikes for millions of middle-class Americans. Tax hikes for the middle class. Tax breaks for blue state millionaires. Amazing. Tax hikes for the middle class. Tax breaks for millionaires. These are Democrats. Hundreds of billions of dollars added to deficits. Bills not paid for. Trillions in new government spending during a period of painful inflation. Forced taxpayer funding of abortion. And a doubling of IRS audits. Can you think of some political attacks that might arise from just those bullet points? Brian Riedel breaks it down with us next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back from Chicago today. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. We're joined now by Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, budget wonk, budget expert, longtime aide on Capitol Hill. Brian, good to have you back. Glad to be back, Guy. Thank you. All right. So let's roll through what just happened today. I punched through a couple bullet points. In the last segment, 
of this Build Back Better bill that the Democrats in the House of Representatives passed, basically exactly along party lines. Every Republican voted no, thankfully. Uh, Only one Democrat joined them. The rest of them, Pelosi got them to walk the plank, and they were clapping and they were cheering and they were chanting. I think this bill that will not be law is just packed with huge political liabilities. The one that I can't really believe is true, but it is true, is that House Democrats have just passed a bill that would raise taxes on millions of middle class families and give a tax break for two thirds of millionaires in this country. And I maybe they feel like because they're Democrats, they can get away with that. And the normal attack lines that are actually pretty effective sometimes that they deploy against Republicans couldn't possibly boomerang back on them. But they have almost in this cartoonish way just voted to raise taxes on the middle class and cut taxes for millionaires. And I wonder if that might appear in an attack ad or two, Brian, next year. Absolutely. It's it's actually stunning that for all of their attacks in the 2017 tax cuts as a giveaway to the rich, in some ways the distribution tables are even uglier in terms of giving more benefits uh, to upper-income individuals. You know, the big change, the biggest provision in this bill, more bigger than child care and family leave and climate, is um, raising the cap on the state and local deduction. And 84% of the benefits go to the richest 10% of households. There is nothing in the Republican tax cuts in 2017 that would have given anywhere close to 84% of the benefits to the richest 10%. So all of this inequality rhetoric, all this talk about helping the poor, helping working class families, the real takeaway here is that the Democrats are the party of the coastal professional class, and when push comes to shove, the biggest provision in the bill is a giveaway to the coastal professional class. That's amazing. It's a tax break for rich blue state people that is the number one element of this bill it's the biggest line item a tax break for rich people in blue states and the analysis from democratic economists was that two-thirds of millionaires will benefit two-thirds of millionaires will get a tax cut under this whereas up to 30 percent of middle-class families will get a tax hike that's the other side of it it's not just tax cuts for the rich which I'm not necessarily opposed to, especially if you're cutting taxes across the board. They did tax cuts for the rich, specifically in blue states, while also raising taxes on millions of middle class people. I mean, I don't know how you run away from that vote. They're going to try. Mark my words, they're going to try to run away from that vote. I don't know how they can do it. There's also this piece of it, Brian, the IRS enforcement stuff. Right? They said that would net them, what, $400 billion of pay-fors? CBO said no, it's going to be much lower than that. There was a big gap here, hundreds of billions of dollars of a gap between this bill being paid for, which is what they claimed over and over again, and the reality, what they have said, the Democrats, is we don't care. We don't trust the CBO. They don't know what they're doing. Trust us. This is going to do really well, and it is paid for. So basically the Republicans and the Congressional Budget Office, that's all propaganda. The bill's paid for. It's going to be fine. Under their own theory, they have to be very excited about the IRS being much more muscular, much more aggressive, doubling the number of tax audits 
And that's also going to hit some working class and middle class people, right, Brian? Absolutely. And I was on, the, I was on a, a panel on Friday with a director of the CBO who pointed out that their estimate of IRS tax enforcement revenues is perfectly in line with the bulk of academic research. And the White House number is, is an extraordinarily outlier. But ultimately, you're exactly right. The, 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 what, what they are doing is hiring a substantially large number of new IRS agents, giving them new tools, and you know, we're hearing that, you know, the people who should cower in fear is Wall Street and billionaires. Well, they're the ones with the, they're the, ones with the tax lawyers. They're going to be fine. They're, they know how to beat the IRS. Right. The they people, got compliance the people. people. Unarmed. You know, the, 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 small business, the, the small business owner who owns a laundromat or the, the upper income uh, or, or uh, middle class family, they're unarmed when dealing with the IRS. And they're the ones who are probably going to have the bigger pound of flesh taken from them. So I'm just trying to contextualize what 220 House Democrats have just voted for. As we mentioned, a tax break for rich people in blue states, two-thirds of millionaires, a tax increase for tens of millions of middle-class people, a beefed-up, more aggressive, more powerful IRS with enforcement tools to not just go after billionaires and millionaires, but a lot of other people, people already resent the IRS in a lot of ways. The Democrats have empowered them. The whole goal is to find more cheating or more alleged cheating. And even if you think that's a great thing, their numbers are way off from what CBO has determined. And again, they're saying, just don't don't bother with that. Who cares? We're moving forward anyway. These moderates, so-called moderates, said, we need a CBO score. CBO said, okay, here's your score. And even with all of the gimmicks and all of the nonsense that they stuffed into that thing to try to make it seem like it would be revenue neutral and, you know, deficit neutral, it's not. It's still in the hole by hundreds of billions of dollars. And for reasons, Brian, that you've described on this show before, the real cost is going to be in the trillions because the whole way that this is set up is they have a few of these programs supposedly expire or sunset after just a, a random number of years taken to sort of goose and manipulate the score, right? They arbitrarily say, okay, this will be uh, you know, a four-year program or a five-year program. They say out loud, our intention is for it to go forever. And it'll be very painful for future Congresses to vote to end something. So we're going to say it's four years on paper, just for the math, and then we'll extend it for 10 years. So, I mean, there's a huge explosion of additional spending that's not even in this CBO score. But that being said, the CBO score has hundreds of billions of dollars added to the deficits. That's very different from the zero dollars that we were told this would cost. Then there's taxpayer-funded abortion. We know that a lot of Hispanics are drifting away from Democrats. That's not something that's going to play well in some of these swing districts and states. Brian, we have 30 seconds. If you were a Republican, what would be your number one attack against a Democrat who just voted for this thing? I think my, my attack would be they are raising taxes and endangering inflation uh, in order to give tax hikes or t- tax cuts for rich people who don't need it and drive us trillions of dollars into red ink. And I would say also, if you think your, your taxes are going up a little bit now, wait till they have to raise taxes down the road yeah, to, to pay, pay for, for more of this stuff that, they, that they're yep. bringing us. And everything that he just said in that soundbite, that attack happens to be true and accurate the ads write themselves brian riedel on the guy benson show thank you sir we'll be right back
As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, I want to flag this for you. In fact, I saw it on Twitter from Mark Hemingway, Molly Hemingway's husband, who's a really good writer, and he will actually be here joining us in the next hour. He's got a great piece out on fact-checking that whole industry and how busted it really is in a lot of ways. So stay tuned for that. But he highlighted this on Twitter, and I wanted to share it with you. So you know that we are fans here at the show of a woman called Barry Weiss, former New York Times editor who resigned in a blaze of glory. What was it, last year, last summer? When she had just had enough of the insane, increasingly woke, vengeful culture inside the New York Times. And she was harassed. She's Jewish and pro-Israel. She felt deeply, almost unsafe in that environment based on things that people were saying. It was a hostile work environment, so she got out. She pulled the ripcord, and the resignation letter that she published was just fire emojis. So she is dating a woman called Nellie Bowles. And full disclosure, I actually have met Nellie when she was a teenager. I knew her brother at Northwestern. And I briefly was at their house. They lived in the Bay Area. And I met her back then. She then became like a pretty hotshot reporter at the New York Times. Young, up and coming, doing well. She has now resigned from the New York Times for various reasons. And these are both center-left women, by the way. I would not consider either of them conservatives by any stretch. They are center-left, but they are part of this crew, which I applaud loudly, this crew of more traditionally liberal, left-of-center people who want to stand up to the mob, who are absolutely not just tired of, but alarmed by the woke crew and are actively fighting back. So Barry Weiss is one of the real gladiators on that whole front, and she's given uh, a platform on her substack to Nellie, who's a very good writer. And she's done already some really interesting, thought-provoking stuff. I'd imagine not every conservative would agree with all of it, but I think it's like pretty level-headed, clear-headed stuff, which is necessary these days. We don't need ideological purity tests. What we do need is people willing to stand up to the hard left. On the right and the left and in the center. right? I think that's a really important thing because we can't let the lunatics run the whole place. Right? They want to take over the country, and we need allies, right, left, and center, who are going to stand up to them. So Nellie Bowles, that's sort of just a background note on all of this. Nellie Bowles now gone from the New York Times, just like Barry Weiss, gone from the New York Times. Nellie has revealed something that happened while she was working at the New York Times. It was last year. And it ties actually into the Rittenhouse trial. We just got those verdicts earlier today. We talked about that. We've got Andy McCarthy coming up. He will give his uh, legal analysis of it as a former prosecutor. But before we knew what the verdict was, before we knew what the jury was going to decide, and they decided not guilty on all counts, Nellie Bowles writes about how she went to Kenosha in the wake of the violent rioting and just crime sprees where much of that town was burned down and destroyed, largely due to a massive mischaracterization along racial lines of a police-involved shooting. 
And back in 2020, especially over the summer, it became de rigueur. It became sort of the expected thing that when the sort of hardcore extreme Black Lives Matter left wing did not get its way on something or something angered them, there would be massive riots in the streets. And this happened in many cities. Kenosha was notable because it was a relatively small area, right, in sort of like suburban Wisconsin. But we saw this destruction all over the place. We talked about it a lot. and It was either excused or downplayed or in some cases even encouraged by elements of the Democratic Party. And then we got all the defund the police stuff, etc. That has all backfired. You see a lot of Democratic politicians sprinting away from it, but a lot of them at least turned their face away, averted their eyes, and a lot of them were in some ways complicit. And it's been a disaster in terms of public safety, in terms of race relations, and of course politically for them as well, which I think is part of the reason that you're seeing so much of the backpedaling. It's hurting them politically. If they felt like it was neutral or or helping them, I don't think they would have any real self-reflection at all. Even though what we saw was disgraceful day after day in a lot of these cities. So Nellie Bowles, then at the New York Times, goes to Kenosha to do some reporting. And here's what she now informs her new readership about what happened, what occurred, what became of that reporting. Here's what she writes. A note on Kenosha in light of the Rittenhouse trial. Until quite recently, the mainstream liberal argument was that burning down businesses for racial justice was both good and healthy. Burnings allowed for the expression of righteous rage. And the businesses all had insurance to rebuild. Right? That is, I think, a a fairly accurate assessment from Nellie Bowles. When I was at the New York Times, she writes, I went to Kenosha to see about this. And it turned out to be not true. The part of Kenosha that people burned in the riots was the poor, multiracial commercial district full of small, underinsured cell phone shops and car lots. It was very sad to see and to hear from people who had suffered. Beyond the financial loss, small storefronts are quite meaningful to their owners and communities, which continuously baffles the Zoom class. Something odd happened with that story after I filed it. It didn't run. It sat and sat. Now, it could be that the piece was just bad. I've sent in bad ones before, and I'll do it again. A few weeks after I filed, an editor told me the Times wouldn't be able to run my Kenosha insurance debacle piece until after the 2020 election. So sorry. There were a variety of reasons given, space, timing, tweaks here or there. Eventually, the election passed. Biden was in the White House, and my Kenosha story ran. Whatever the reason for holding the peace, covering the suffering after the riots was not a priority. The reality that brought Kyle Rittenhouse into the streets was one we reporters were meant to ignore. The old man who tried to put out a blaze at a Kenosha store, had his jaw broken. The top editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer had to resign in June 2020 amid staff outcry for publishing a piece with the headline, Buildings Matter Too. If you had lived in those neighborhoods on fire, you were not supposed to get an extinguisher. The proper response, the only acceptable response, was to see the brick and mortar torn down, to watch the fires burn, and to say, thank you. 
This is, I think, an extraordinary revelation. They dispatched one of their good, up-and-coming young reporters to Kenosha, Wisconsin. She saw firsthand the stories of suffering. She saw that the mainstream liberal line was not true and that people were really hurting. She wrote the story to reflect the facts on the ground. And the New York Times decided that that was not a piece that needed to run before the 2020 election, where Wisconsin was determined by, what, one percentage point? They didn't want to run the risk, it seems, of helping Donald Trump win that state again by simply reporting facts because Trump and the Republicans were speaking on behalf of the vast majority of Americans and Wisconsinites who have no tolerance for violent rioting. And so they came up with a whole little haze of excuses and they waited and waited and waited. And then finally, the truth could be told once the election was safely over and the correct outcome, quote unquote, was achieved. That's not according to me. That's according to Nellie Bowles, who was that New York Times reporter. And as I mentioned, who has since left the newspaper and resigned. Second hour of the Guy Benson show is coming up. Andy McCarthy will be here on the Rittenhouse Not Guilty Verdicts. It's straight ahead. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show middle hour now underway friday edition of the guy benson show from chicago illinois we're live thank you for listening i'm guy benson our website guybensonshow.com the podcast and all sorts of other goodies available there for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes down in the red 269 points. This is the day that the Democrats in the House passed their awful bill. I think it's a very different question, very different situation in the Senate, of course. But the market's down today, 269 points. Ending the week at 35,601. That's the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And we continue to follow the biggest news story of the day and another Fox News alert. The jury has reached verdicts on the counts against Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We got that word earlier today, and within minutes, those verdicts were read in open court. Five counts. And every verdict was the same. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Rittenhouse fell to the floor, overwhelmed by relief and the emotions of the moment. And like clockwork, entirely predictably, a blizzard, a blinding blizzard of absolutely insane reaction has already begun. And I truly hope that we will not see violence. The last thing we need is more violence. I wouldn't be shocked if we see more violence. Because there is still misinformation and dishonesty being eagerly spread all over the place. And we will get into some of that here coming up. Joining us to react to all of it and analyze what just happened 
is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, welcome back again to the show on this issue. We're glad to have you. Guy, I'm always glad to be with you. Well, you and I started to talk about in our last discussion earlier in the week, Wednesday, the possibility of a hung jury and a possible mistrial. You wrote a piece about that. It seemed like those theories were really starting to proliferate and build when the jury was yet again sent home after a day of deliberation with with no verdicts. People really started to think, oh, you know, maybe they are deadlocked. Maybe we're not going to get a verdict. And then we did. Acquittals across the board. Just give us your overall thoughts on what happened today, the outcome of this case, and perhaps why you think it took so long. Well, Guy, I'm delighted by the result just because I think it was a not only that it was a just verdict, but I think it, we should all be relieved that the jury resolved this case rather than putting a hot potato back in the judge's lap, which I think would have happened if the jury had not resolved the case. Uh, I was obviously wrong in thinking that there would be a hung jury. With each passing hour, I was more convinced of that uh, because it was a fairly straightforward case, a short trial, a finite trial record, really one intermixed legal and factual question to be decided, which was did uh, Kyle Rittenhouse have a valid self-defense claim on the facts of the case? And it really came down, even by the prosecutor's theory, to what happened in the first confrontation, because they argued that if uh, he was in the wrong on the first confrontation, that everything else, the cascade of other events that followed, uh, he would be wrong with respect to those uh, two. So that's really what the jury had to home in on. Uh, I thought that was a kind of a question that even if you gave it respectful attention, it could be resolved in a few hours. So for it to take over 30 hours, um, I don't think you could reasonably not uh, envision the possibility that there were jurors who simply were not deliberating. That is, that they were refusing to resolve the case based on outside uh, pressure or intimidation. But one thing that always pushed back against that guy is that we never got a note from the jury that said they were deadlocked. And typically when a jury hangs, uh, you get a note or two toward the end where they inform the court that they're at an impasse and they just can't resolve it. And the judge says, no, like, you know, try harder, right? That often happens. You've got to give it, right? And that never happened in this case. No, it never did. So, uh, and, you know, maybe I should have given more uh, attention to that, but I did expect that we were going to hear that today. And I was uh, delighted when it turned out that they had a verdict. And I think I want to repeat the one thing that I I hope I've been clear on, Guy, and that is there's kind of a juxtaposition between what we invest in trials and what we get out of them. You know, trials are very important. Uh, We, we, as we saw in this one, they get larded with people's uh, baggage as far as politics and, and, uh, and the like is concerned. But we also rely on them to air out all of the uh, what seem to be the important uh, issues around an event. Uh, it becomes our historical record of what happened. But in the end, what gets resolved is really a very narrow issue, which is, did the state have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to support the charges that they brought against Kyle Rittenhouse? And they, it, it turns out that they didn't. But that doesn't resolve, you know, why was there unrest on the streets? 
Did mm-hmm. he belong on the street? Should he have had a gun? You know, all of these great questions that I don't, I don't mean to suggest that they're important. I, in fact, I'm trying to argue exactly the opposite. They're extremely important. They're worthy of our consideration, but they don't get resolved by the trial. One question that I've gotten from people, they kept asking me, what do you think is going to happen? And my honest answer was, you never know, but I think the jury is going to take their time. They want to be thorough. They really want to give the appearance of thoroughness. Like, you know, this was not just some you know quick, a quick deliberation and a slam dunk because they knew how charged everything was. So they wanted to uh, make it clear that they were not being uh, or taking this lightly. And ultimately, the only verdict that could come back, certainly on the big charges of murder, was not guilty because you have to, as you say, the standard is proof beyond a reasonable doubt and i mean at the very least there was reasonable doubt littered all over this case if not a a proactive maybe not airtight but very strong counter case for self-defense like you know a, a an actual affirmative defense here that i thought was extremely compelling so that was my guess a, a long deliberation and then not guilty that's ended up that is what ended up happening of course but I'm with you for a while there, especially yesterday. I started to think, my, my goodness, uh, they might actually be hung. And they, this might go to uh, the judge on a mistrial, and then what? But clearly that's not what happened. And one of the other questions that I've gotten, even just from like friends and, and people that I know, acquaintances, so, you know, what do you think, why was the prosecution so bad? You know, why, why were they so flawed? What did they do wrong? In your view, and my answer, and you have a much better, I think, read on this, Andy, having been a prosecutor and tried cases in court, my simple answer was the problem with the prosecution setting aside the way that they conducted themselves, and I think some of the very sketchy, dodgy things that they attempted and got reprimanded repeatedly by the judge, I think they really pushed the envelope, they relied on some stunts and some questionable stuff for sure, But to me, that was all a product of the fact that they just had an extremely weak case on the merits, and they were trying to prove charges that I think deep down they realized were not even fair charges. I think their case was doomed from the moment they decided to charge this kid with murder. That was my take, and I think that the inescapable conclusion is they made that charging decision not necessarily because they're idiots or bad lawyers, but because they felt strong political pressure. And when you make a bad decision for a bad reason, and then you have to go to court and try to justify it under a justice system that is even mostly functional, you get burned. And I think the prosecution got burned. Do you agree with that? I do. I think that what you have here is the situation that has become more common in in recent times, Uh, where you have a political uh, narrative that people decide that they are so confident in that they can bring it into not the court of public opinion, but a court of law where procedural rules and evidence rules and uh, other legal rules apply and where it's got to go through uh, the, the cauldron of examination and cross-examination uh, and the like. And those things never do well. Uh, there was a time, I think, that we were um, uh, that we were more hesitant to bring cases like that uh, into court. Um, and, and unfortunately, 
that seems to happen more often than it should now because we seem to have, you know, when critical thinking starts to sort of erode, which I think it, it has in many ways, yes. people begin to lose the distinction between, you know, what's a morality play and what's reality and, you know, what is your truth versus the truth. And in courtrooms, the truth still matters when we do yes. the process correctly, which is... Thank God. And thank God it still does matter and that it played out that way. And, you know, I've gotten a few critics being like, oh, I remember that you were for Chauvin getting convicted of murder. All of a sudden, you're you're happy that this kid didn't? I'm like, yeah, because of the evidence. And this is, goes to the critical thinking point. This is not a morality play. This is not some tribal dispute where you like someone or dislike someone based on who's mad or whatever. It's it's life and death in a lot of cases. It is a court of law where the evidence is paramount, and the evidence. I mean, there's just there's no comparison in these two cases or the evidence. I just I find so much of the reaction to be very deeply stupid and disheartening. But before I get too disheartened or demoralized, I have to remind myself the system worked here. The jury looked at the evidence, and got it right. And I know that's an opinion on my part, but I think it's the right one because I care about critical thinking, I care about evidence, and obviously the jury did as well. Andy, speaking about opinions here, one of the debates that has already started now is does Rittenhouse potentially have a case to be made against any number of people for defamation where he could go and file some lawsuits as a private citizen, I mean, he was called all sorts of things, a white supremacist, a murderer, major news organizations airing this stuff. Joe Biden's campaign portrayed him as a white supremacist. Uh, I've seen some legal experts saying, well, you know, a lot of this stuff's just opinion, so that's not going to necessarily stand up in a lawsuit. Other people may have gone further than that. Uh, a lot of folks thinking back to the Covington case, for example, and, and uh, that that kid who was smeared by so many people he he got a payday there uh what is your thought on that do you think we'll see lawsuits and and what are the prospects for those lawsuits if they choose to go that direction yeah i sure hope not guy i think that when kyle rittenhouse crumpled upon the the enormous relief of learning that he had been justly acquitted today i hope that he takes that as with the with the gratitude that he ought to take it with as a chance to go live as much of a normal life as he can go live under the circumstances he's been through uh, at this young age, in part due to his own behavior. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, this is a very hard lesson to learn, but the best thing I think he could do for his life is go disappear. Don't be a public figure. Don't be used by people who, you know, want to make a point. Uh, go try to have a life. You know, you got a second chance today. It, I'm not, it's not to say you, he didn't deserve one. He absolutely deserved it. But a lot of things happen, Guy, as we know, that are not fair. And a lot of times people deserve a second chance and they don't get one. He got one today. I, my best advice to him would be go live a good life. You know, disappear for a while, be a kid, uh, and don't become a, a symbol because I don't I don't think that's going to help. I can't imagine any cause that him being a symbol 
would be helpful to, and I don't see, more importantly, how it would be helpful to him. I think that's wise. I think that's well said. Andy McCarthy, our colleague at Fox News, a former federal prosecutor here on The Guy Benson Show, as we analyze the across-the-board sweeping acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, earlier this afternoon. Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you for making time again. Thanks so much, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I was just on a few minutes ago with uh, Martha McCallum on the story on Fox News Channel. And I brought this up because this is what I think the truth is up against. A torrent, a deluge of misinformation about this trial. Especially today from a lot of people who are mad about the outcome and want to justify that anger. And a lot of it is ignorant. Some of it is just malignant. Here's an example. The chairman of the DCCC, so the campaign arm, the Democratic Party, trying to hold control of the House of Representatives. So a high-ranking Democrat put out a statement on the Rittenhouse verdict and tried to contextualize it. It was a very angry statement. Tried to contextualize it by calling back to the riots of last summer in Kenosha, where all this went down. And Chairman Maloney referred to those as protests. There were protests, of course, but what they descended into was rioting. And the refusal to draw that distinction continues to be, I think, a disgraceful sort of sleight of hand and conflation by a lot of people. So the statement refers to it as protesting and says that what happened was what the protests were sparked by, this was, again, a statement today, was the unjustified killing, the unjust killing of an unarmed black man. So we're going back to Jacob Blake, Kenosha, Wisconsin, last summer. And there are two things that are flatly untrue just in the span of one sentence fragment in this statement from a leading Democrat. Jacob Blake was not killed. He's alive. He didn't die from his wounds from what was deemed to be, by the way, a justified police shooting. And he was also not an unarmed man. He was armed with a knife and was going for it when he was shot. That is a crucial piece of the evidence that led to no charges against the cop who shot him. And yet you have a top elected Democrat racing out in an effort to signal and preen and stir up division for political reasons, racing out a BS statement that doesn't even bother to get basic factual information correct about the initial incident that sparked the rioting. The unjust killing, it was ruled not unjust, and it was not a killing, of an unarmed black man who was in fact armed. It's disgraceful. It's appalling. And we're seeing a lot of nonsense like that. 
And if there is violence tonight, it's on these people. It's almost like they're rooting for it in some cases. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. We have Mark Hemingway coming up in just a bit. I just want to continue responding to some of the just insane things that are being spewed out into the universe in response to the uh, Rittenhouse verdicts. Not guilty on all counts today. I talked about the DCCC chairman getting basic factual information wrong, which is very much on brand, right? If you are losing your mind over the verdicts today, it is likely because you are either so blinkered by outside ideology and obsessed with things like race that the evidence doesn't matter to you, or you are ignorant of the evidence. Julio Rosas, we've had him on the show, colleague of mine at Town Hall. He was there for the riots. Some of his footage made it into the trial as evidence. He's been covering the trial, and after the not guilty verdicts, he tweeted very succinctly, this is almost a direct quote, said, if you are in shock over the verdicts, you need better news sources. I'm already starting to see it, you know, the Instagram stories from progressive people needing to immediately communicate their outrage over what happened. White supremacy. Can you poll these people? Do any of them know that everyone who was shot was white? Do they know about the facts of the case, the self-defense argument? I don't think they know any of that. I think they are told by people in the zeitgeist, this is about white supremacy. It's what the Biden campaign called Kyle Rittenhouse, too. It's about white supremacy. And therefore, it must be white supremacy that led to the verdict. It is aggressive, almost proud ignorance. Unsurprisingly, we got some dreck from Colin Kaepernick. Why bring him up? An unemployed former quarterback. Well, he's not unemployed. Right? He is the he is the pride of Nike and Disney. These people shovel him a lot of money, really protection money, from the race racket. That some of the biggest corporations in America have partnered with this man who's portrayed the police as pigs, who's called July 4th a celebration of white supremacy. Here's his take on the verdict. And this is very representative of a lot of the stuff that we're seeing, by the way. I'm not just, you know, nut picking a a totally random non-representative example. This is quite representative. Quote, this is Kaepernick. We just witnessed a system built on white supremacy validate the terroristic acts of a white supremacist. This only further validates the need to abolish our current system. White supremacy cannot be reformed. Well, I hope what the left runs with that. I really hope that they do because they will just get crushed. They'll blame that on white supremacy too. But this is just blathering idiocy. From Colin Kaepernick, who will perhaps console himself 
know, he might whip up a bunch of people to go out and burn things. He'll be perfectly safe in his mansion, consoling himself with his uh, huge amounts of money, piles of cash furnished by some of the biggest companies in the whole country, Nike and Disney. I hope they're proud of themselves. Hope they're happy with that investment. Mayor of New York City calling the verdict disgusting, sending a horrible message to the country. Really? Even President Biden, I praised him earlier for giving a simple answer to a reporter that he supports the jury and the jury system works. It's one of the better things he's ever said. He finally got something right, Uncle Joe. So, of course, it couldn't stand, and the White House has put out a much lengthier statement, some good, some bad, but he calls himself, you know, concerned and angry about the verdict. I'd like to know why angry, Mr. President. Do you stand by the white supremacist smear? Unfortunately, this is going to get a lot dumber before we move on from this. And it's scary that when justice is served based on the evidence after this kind of horrible tragedy, it is treated this way. And there are a lot of people who seem like they're running around with a lit match. It's The Guy Benson Show. It is The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Thank you for tuning in. I'm in Chicago today. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. If you miss any of the live show, the podcast is right there for you every day, free of charge, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. We welcome to the show now Mark Hemingway, senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. You are familiar, certainly, with the work of his wife, Molly, on this program quite a lot. Mark is a prolific and sharp writer in his own right, and we are very pleased to have him here. Mark, great to have you. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show, sir. Hey, I'm glad to be here, too. So I saw this piece that you wrote about fact-checking, and it was like I needed this just shot directly into my veins. This is exactly the type of thing that needs to be written and I think really covered on a regular basis. Because one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to the mainstream media and increasingly to big tech is the absolutely shoddy, ideological, biased, tendentious world of fact-checking and the way that many, not all, fact-checkers go about their business really to just launder, in many cases, Democratic claims and impugn Republican claims, regardless of the actual facts. So you wrote about this just within the last few days, and it's really sharp. And I would love for you just to run through your basic thesis and your key points for our audience, what people should be thinking about and looking for as they consider this issue and digest sort of the whole industry of so-called fact-checking. Yeah, so I've been writing about fact-checkers for more than a decade, basically. Um, you know, I first wrote about fact-checkers, I think it was like December of 2011 or something like that. I wrote a long essay that got a lot of attention where I pointed out exactly how shoddy and biased these fact-checkers are. I mean, they've done university studies on this. You know, fact-checkers routinely, you know, major fact-checkers like PolitiFact routinely in a given period will find Republican statements false at a rate of three times you know, um, higher than that of Democratic statements. I mean, like, this isn't even up for debate. And then you delve into, like, individual fact checks. Like, for instance, PolitiFact rated Barack Obama's statement, um, if you like your health insurance, you can keep your health insurance. But maybe the most notorious political lie of the last decade, 
six times rated it as true before um, Obamacare was implemented and tens of millions of Americans lost their health insurance. Um, so, I mean, th- there's no doubt that they are you know, terrible in that regard. Well, and, and then it became, you, just to jump in, Mark, I remember because they rated that true, 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 all the way down, as you mentioned, and then it became their own lie of the year. And it, I think for a lot of people, it's like, okay, I'm sorry, you've been telling us year after year, that we're crazy, that we're liars, that he's telling the truth, and now you finally come around years later and say, oh, wait, this was such a huge lie. It's the biggest political lie of the year, according to you. I just don't know how you recover from that, credibility-wise. Oh, yeah. No, and, and there are several incidents like that with fact-checkers. But, but that lie in particular, it was all about timing. They rated that, that statement as true all the way through the 2012 election. Uh, and Obama got reelected, and then the, the way that they de- designed Obamacare, and they deliberately designed it so that major parts of the law wouldn't be implemented until after his reelection. And then he got reelected, the law got implemented, and everyone realized he was lying, and then PolitiFact came out and said, oh, by the way, uh, whoops, we made a mistake, now it's lie of the year. Um, uh-huh. you know, there, there's really no doubt that these people are laser-focused on defending Democrats and improving their electoral chances. So, I mean, that's basically the world of fact-checking as we know it, and it's been that way since... Well, you know, fact-checking really became a thing in 2007 with the founding of PolitiFact. But so the 14 years or so we've been dealing with political fact-checkers, that's been the reality. They are partisan activists, more or less. Now, what's new? Would you would you just agree quickly, Mark, before we get to – I think you're going to pivot here to big tech. But in and as you look at – there's factcheck.org. There's the Washington Post. There's PolitiFact. I think some individual fact-checkers and organizations are better than others. Do you agree with me? That PolitiFact is probably the worst? Um, PolitiFact is probably the worst. Um, I, I would agree, although USA Today is now has a robust fact-checking operation that might give, be giving them a run for their money in terms of being okay. terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Politif- I mean, USA Today ran a fact-check last year that said something like it was uh, Democrats were not the party of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, like, it was just like it wasn't even like a thing, a fact to check. And one, it's true that, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was innately associated with the Democratic Party since the end of the Civil War. And two, um, you know, this wasn't even a fact to check. I mean, this was literally them just pushing a narrative. I mean, and, and that's, you know, kind of where a lot of these fact checks are coming from. You yeah, know, yeah. They, and this is this is one of my favorite kind of genres of fact checking. One of them is just them getting nervous on behalf of Democrats and just deciding to pump something out there in order to reinforce a narrative that they want reinforced. Then another subgenre, if you will, is finding something accurate that a Republican has said, but it is also inconvenient for Democrats, so they find a way through added context or what have you to rate the claim you know, partially untrue or mostly even untrue, where they admit in the course of the fact check that the statistic or the assertion or what have you is factually correct, but, and then it's like, no, no, once you get to the but, your entire reason for existing is now over. Like, it's either correct or it's not correct, and you can let other people adjudicate what context is, you know, necessary and that kind of thing, and that happens all the time. Yes, that is an astute and very accurate observation about what fact-checkers do. In fact, I remember... You know, one of the fact checks that really sent me over the edge and got me writing about this was years ago, Rand Paul was appearing on one of the Sunday morning shows on the news. And he said this statement about how, you know, federal workers make one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, you know, which is you know twice what 
the average you know private sector person makes. And PolitiFact ran that statement and said it was false. And the reason why they said it was false was because um, Rand Paul didn't clarify that he wasn't talking about salaries, but he was talking about total compensation. Um, and if you dig down to that, it's like, well, no, the average federal worker still makes a salary that's $30,000 more than the you know private sector average. They just get a benefits package that's four times what the average private sector benefits package is. Now, does that make you feel any better? I mean, does that is was that a helpful clarification on their part? But this is the thing. It's just a branding exercise. If you look at that fact check, all you do is you see a statement, you know, you see a picture of Rand Paul, and then you see a giant thing that says false in huge capital letters right next to it, right? Um, it's strictly marketing. You know, it's just, you know, you have to wade through 1,500 words of tendentious explanation to get to the truth of it. And that's very much a lot of what they do. It's about, you know, kicking up dust in an extraneous context and pedophogging to make it seem like something that is blatantly true is not true because it's inconvenient for Democrats to acknowledge the truth of the matter. And now, Mark, we've got this phenomenon where some of this shoddy, less than accurate, biased stuff is now treated as really almost like, you know, the word of God chiseled into tablets by some of the most important and influential, really, uh, gatekeepers to information in this country, in big tech. Talk about that aspect of this broader issue. So, yeah, this is what's new. This is that fact-checking has become a tool for censorship for big tech, basically. And, and again, and it goes straight back to partisan motivation for this sort of thing. Basically what happened was this. In 2016, Donald Trump won an election. And everyone in, you know, every left-of-center institution in America, especially journalists, um, and especially big tech started freaking out about this victory, right? So immediately after Donald Trump wins, everybody starts casting about for villains to explain how this horrible thing happened to them. And they settled on two villains. The first was Russia, which is a whole other rabbit hole to go down to. And the second was Facebook somehow enabled Donald Trump's victory. And what was interesting was that at the time, you know, that Trump was elected, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's immediate reaction was, you people are crazy to blame Facebook for, you know, helping Trump get elected. Uh, but what happened was there was an internal revolt within Facebook itself from Facebook's own employees. And so Trump wins in November of 2016. And by December of 2017, Facebook announces they've initiated this new, quote unquote, fact checking program to deal with disinformation on their platform. Um, and what they did, of course, is because Facebook has to maintain this, this facade that they're not out there, you know, randomly censoring people like a traditional news publisher. They partnered with media organizations to conduct these fact checks, right? And if one of their fact checking partners comes out and says, oh, well, this story's not true or it's disinformation, they will, you know, and, and I know this because I worked at a publication that was participating in Facebook's fact checking program. They, they, the, the, the publication goes into the back end of Facebook after they've done their fact check, like USA Today is a fact checking partner, PolitiFact is a fact checking partner, Facebook. And these fact checkers, they go in and they say, they put in a link to the back end of Facebook and they say, this is not true, regardless of whatever tendentious explanation they come up with. And Facebook's yeah. own press releases brag that they kill 80% of the global internet traffic to that story, um, which is absolutely, utterly insane, if you know anything about well, and, the fact and Mark. Process. And what's also concerning, too, because you just used that phrase misinformation, that buzzword. We've talked about it a lot here. And look, there is lots of misinformation out there, right? There are people actively lying. There are conspiracy theories. There's a lot of dangerous stuff out there. And I think refuting it with correct information is very important. 
The problem is, and you've sort of alluded to this, the problem is stuff that is absolutely not debunked as untrue, but is said to be debunked as untrue for ideological reasons or political reasons, often, it seems, or at least occasionally turns out to, in fact, be quite true. And you think about, for example, the lab leak theory of coronavirus, which is now viewed as very credible. That was the type of, quote unquote, misinformation that was stymied and suppressed by these organizations and these algorithms. Uh, The Hunter Biden laptop story in the closing days of a presidential campaign. Same thing. So you have a lot of people who get very worried about it. Rightly so. Twitter is another example. They created their own sort of like half-assed, on-the-fly fact-check system, which is terrible. I There was one that I remember where they were flagging something as misinformation regarding China and then linking to their own factual, supposedly, information on this kind of fly-by-night thing that they cobbled together seemingly at the last minute. And their alleged fact-check was filled with falsehoods and, in fact, CCP propaganda and people pointed that out this is how backwards it can get and mark hemingway our guest who's a reporter for real clear investigations a writer for them he does a really good job Uh, he lays out all of this sort of the latest wrinkle in the fact-checking wars and what's new as he points out is the suppression and censorship side with big tech which i think is the most concerning and insidious development across this issue that, as he said, has been an issue for well over a decade. He's covered a lot. We've covered it as well. And, Mark, we appreciate you spending some time with us today. Where can people find the piece, just if they want to Google it? So this piece is at thedailywire.com. And, uh, um, yeah, just, you know, look for my name at The Daily Wire. Perfect. And we do believe it still shows up on Google. They haven't taken it down. So go check it out. Uh, The Daily Wire, Mark Hemingway on fact-checking. Mark, appreciate it. If I don't talk to you, have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me, Guy. Our best to Molly as well and the whole family. With that, we will step aside. One final hour of today's Guy Benson show is straight ahead. The happy hour is next. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Friday. From Chicago, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Happy Friday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free, including bonus Benson on the weekends, which you really don't want to miss. That's GuyBensonShow.com. One more time. The happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing year-round. Even when the weather gets cold like it is now here in Chicago. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining us now is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, 
and chief romance correspondent, deputy pregnancy correspondent here at the Guy Benson Show as well. Her titles just keep growing. Jesse, welcome back. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday to you, too. So last time we checked in, let's start with some uh, nonsense and get to more serious stuff in a bit. Last time we checked in on the air, I asked you a question about whether or not your nesting instinct as an expectant mother had kicked in yet, and you were like, how did you know what happened yesterday? Is the nesting phase over? Is the entire apartment totally ready for baby? Oh, no. I just think about it all the time, and then I don't do things. Well, we had some shipping delays. In case you haven't heard, there's a supply chain problem. I had Um, heard. So we got, by Tuesday, all of her furniture will be here, and we're getting the wallpapering done Monday. I'm making her room, um, like, a Miami Palms theme, so I have a wallpaper person <laughs> coming on Monday. So <laughs> okay. if we're on again at the end of next week, I think I'll be able to, you know, to expound more upon, you know, how my child is going to live in, you know, some deleted scenes out of, like, a Scarface-type movie, basically, is what we're going oh. for. Okay, hopefully, <laughs> like, a pleasant pro-baby scene that was deleted from Scarface. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, the uncut scenes, the loving ones. But you know what I mean. Just like the, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, the loving ones. Of it. <laughs> yes, yeah. the, the famous loving scenes from Scarface. And you mentioned she's a she, so you, you've got a daughter on the way. When is she due again? December 15th. So, yeah, we're really getting into the uh, the crunch time here. Now, yeah. we had we had talked about this a little bit on the air, and you hadn't really checked with your husband yet, and you have no pressure, none from me, to give an answer to this. However, is there a name picked out, agreed on, or is that a work in progress still? It is agreed upon, um, but I don't think that we're talking about it on nationally televised uh, broadcasts or nationally syndicated or televised broadcast yet. But we have a name that we like, and we're the middle name honors my dad, but for a girl, so we have to, like, modify it a bit. Um, so we're we're good on that front. Okay. that's. I'm glad that a decision has been made. You did say that you were not going to discuss it in a televised setting. I would remind you this is radio. So, I mean, there, there could be a loophole there to that rule. I or nationally syndicated. Isn't that what you would say for radio? Um, it, it, it could be television as well, but that's fine. So you're not saying it on air is the situation, which is fine. You are welcome yeah. to text it to me if you would like to. I will not okay. share it on the air <laughs> against your wishes. Now I'm very curious, but I guess the audience will have to wait for the announcement, the birth announcement. Now, remember, we pressured you really incessantly. Uh, one might say obnoxiously. I would not, but some might say obnoxiously that as soon as you got engaged, you would tell me and... Yeah, Indeed, I was one of the is. first people. Yeah, you you fe- you followed through on that, and I give you immense credit for that. I'm not going to be quite the same way uh, on this. Like, I don't expect <laughs> uh, a text message like mid labor from you. Uh, you're, it's welcome if you want to. If you're like, you know, let me dictate a text message to Guy Benson. That's fine if you want to. Uh, but once you have recovered and everything is cool and you are open to talking, I know you're probably going to take some maternity leave and all of that. Uh, we are very excited, and perhaps we will talk to you at least one more time before the baby comes, but you never know. I do want to ask you this, because I am a huge, and you know this about me, a huge Thanksgiving fan. It's my favorite holiday. 
Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. is, of course, less than a week away, T-minus six days. And to me, the idea, the possibility, the, the, the threat almost that a Thanksgiving might go away because you can't really control, you know, contraction starts like, here we go. Do you have contingency right. plans for the holiday in particular <laughs> if you have to sort of pull the plug on a major family holiday due to these potential circumstances? Like, how will my husband feed me ice chips and stuffing in the hospital? Um, <laughs> we hadn't discussed that, um, but I think that, I mean, fingers crossed, and I'm knocking on wood right now. I, it would be three weeks early, so hopefully my consumption plans will not be altered whatsoever, and I can go forth unafraid uh, next Thursday. I How do your early this year? Yeah, no, I think I think you're probably right. That's probably a smart calculation, and will turn out to be accurate. We've talked about your cravings, your pregnancy cravings for hot dogs. Do you have any? like weird instincts about the Thanksgiving feast? Like, are you desperate for the Thanksgiving feast? Or are you strangely like turned off by something that you typically enjoy? No. Or are you just sort of neutral? No, I'm, I'm turned on like, at, like only in the way a pregnant woman is turned on by food. No, I'm really fed. I'm actually the person who like orders the Thanksgiving platter, like wherever it's available. Like, you know, how sometimes you'll be in like a dirty diner and they'll be like yes. Thanksgiving dinner, 1895. I always order it. Like, I love all the Thanksgiving food. So I'm I'm excited. And this is, we're going to my husband's house, and they're Italian. And so they do Italian and American Thanksgiving. Well, I shouldn't say Italian Thanksgiving. Basically, there's just, like, a big Italian meal and also Thanksgiving available, which is kind of a dream. Like, I could have meatballs and turkey and stuffing and sweet potato and all this stuff. So Oh, it's just and like some penne like it's just like it's, yeah, it's, it's all the things penne for my pocket yeah for your pocket <laughs> now i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna ask you two questions thanksgiving related one of them to me is an extremely difficult food question are you ready for this yeah if you had to pick gravy or cranberry sauce you had to pick only one of them for a thanksgiving meal the other one would be totally absent from the meal which one do you pick? Uh, I would choose uh, sorry gravy and get rid of cranberry sauce if I was making mm. a selection. Mm. Is that not okay. your view? No, I th- no, I think it's defend. I go back and forth, and I'm actually agonizing over it right now. And I wish I hadn't asked the question because I don't have a good answer myself. You were pretty decisive on gravy. I'm leaning that way, but I don't know. Cranberry sauce is we do a homemade cranberry sauce, and it's so mm. crucial to the meal because it, it's like that big pop of acid and it's refreshing and sort of lighter on a very heavy meal. Right. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to deliberate on this for a while. Uh, perhaps Where we can, we can, we're hosting. Didn't you host it last year or did it yeah, that we're, Christmas that you, I feel no, like we, I remember. Yeah, we, we hosted Thanksgiving. We went away for Christmas this year. We're hosting both. So there's a lot of pressure involved here, but we'll have a lot of help and it's going to be, Great fun. Hopefully the weather cooperates and uh, we've got some folks driving in, flying in. That should be terrific. Last question on the Thanksgiving front for you. Is there a tradition in your family related to Thanksgiving that is either unusual 
or particularly meaningful to you? Um, I wouldn't say so beyond we do the fried turkey thing, or we used to. So my dad was the oh. cook in the house, so it was like the, the dangerous, fried. like deep, deep fried turkey situation well, where the fire department's like, like, be New careful. York City standards. Yeah, I mean, we were still, you know, Manhattanites in doing it. Um, so that's something, I guess, a bit different that we did. Um, but this year, since we're, you know, venturing into the Italian abyss, I don't think there will be fried turkey happening. It'll be more standard roast turkey. So not really. What about you guys? Yeah, uh, we, we do a really fun, meaningful tradition where we have three kernels of corn that we put on each place setting. So, you know, uncooked kernels of corn. And then we go around the table, and each person at the table lists three things specifically that they're thankful for over the last year. And sometimes it's very light and sort of silly. Sometimes it's very serious, and it can be very moving and emotional. And I think it's, you know, it goes back to the giving of thanks and gratitude, and we do that. We've always done it as long as I can remember, and it's a great tradition. And if people listening right now like that, they want to rip it off and steal it, by all means. I'm sure we stole it from someone. So just putting that out That's there. very nice. It is okay. very nice. All right, Jessica Tarloff, yeah. let's uh, move on to less nice things. And we have just a few minutes, so almost like rapid response here. Let's just go through and get your quick reaction, your quick analysis on a few items here, starting with the so-called Build Back Better bill passing earlier today in the house i've said quite a lot about it i'll say more about it i think it is not likely to become law and has a lot of stuff in mm -hmm. it that can be uh leveraged for i think very potent political attacks uh, against people who voted for it but the democrats were cheering and chanting for it what do you make of that development um i wasn't surprised i was surprised when it Start when it came up for a vote last night, you know, I guess uh, Leader McCarthy was, or Minority Leader McCarthy, I should say, was speaking for eight and a half hours overnight. Um, like, I went to bed and woke up and he was still talking. Um, I was surprised that it came up for a vote right when it did, but not that Nancy had the vote. Um, I think it was only one Dem voted no in the end. And once he saw that the salt tax uh had stayed in, then I thought, okay, well, that gets all of the Northeastern moderates, right? That were like the Gothheimers of the world. Um, and there were a couple of, if you were spending all your time on Twitter, which both of us seem to do at certain moments in life, as you, as you saw a lot of the blue dog Dems say that they were yeses, you knew it was getting there to the 220 that they ended up with. Oh, yeah, no, um, I, I had I, no doubt that they were going to pass it. I just... At a certain point, I was actually rooting. I was hoping every single one of them would vote for it because I think the attack ads really write themselves, especially on, on taxes and a few <laughs> other provisions. All right, the Rittenhouse verdict, not guilty, all counts, not mm -hmm. too far from where I sit. I'm in Chicago. Kenosha's just over the border. Your thoughts on that? Right. Uh, not surprised by the verdict. Um, obviously, Fox has been covering the case really closely. I watched a tremendous amount of footage of the night uh over the last week or two and i think that there was a very strong case that he was acting in self-defense i hope that the rioting protesting whatever it's going to be will be kept at a minimum and, and safe you know peaceful protests 
I think that there is still a lot of, I don't want to say unanswered questions, but I have been disheartened to see how many people on the right kind of taken in this boy as a hero. I don't see him that way. I'm glad that justice was carried out and I don't want to see anyone go to jail for something um, that they didn't do. But I still don't think there was any reason that he had to, you know, head over to Kenosha, stop by his friend's house, pick up a long barreled AR-15 and go out there to play, you know, vigilante. I just. Yeah. I mean, I, I and I've said, there. I don't think, I don't think he's a hero. And I think that if it were my kid, I would not want him anywhere near that melee. I think you can have those opinions. But the question at the trial, of course, was, was he guilty of the charges? And I think, you know, if you feel like some folks on the right have embraced him too much, I mean, there's the flip side of that, too, with people just slandering this kid. Joe Biden's campaign referred to him as a white supremacist, right? I mean, there are a lot of people because there might be rioting tonight. I hope not. I agree with you. I really hope and pray that there's not. If there is, it's because there are a lot of people who have been saying a lot of, I think, demonstrably false and inflammatory things, bringing in race and that kind of thing. I feel like a lot of the rhetoric around this has been really, really irresponsible. I agree with you completely. I think there's a lot of uh, apologies or, you know, earned criticism of media coverage of this, going back to the fact that, like, from the get-go, we didn't even know that the two men that he killed and the one that he injured were white. Um, I think every, basically everyone assumed that this had been a racial issue. And, yeah, and they continued to make it one. And it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I do think that when you head into a Black Lives Matter protest after the shooting of Jacob Blake, it is a race issue. Like race is not divorced from what was going on here, but he did not kill black men. And I think a lot of people are confused about that. And you even, I've you know watched some telecasts with liberal hosts or left-leaning hosts, and it's not something that's really emphasized. And it's been one of those periods where you think, like, are we watching the same thing? You know, which happens too, you know, too regularly or too often. But with this, it was pretty stark since you're dealing with a trial, right, where everyone yep. is watching the evidence being presented. This wasn't really well, except a lot of people aren't, right? A lot of people are just hearing through the grapevine what they should feel and what the tribe thinks about it. Fortunately, the jury was following the evidence every step of the way. And as I said at the top, I don't think that there was any other conceivably just outcome to the trial than not guilty. And that's what we got earlier. Jessica, we're running over time. We always appreciate your time as we are counting down the days to you being a mother. We're so excited for you. If I don't talk to you before then, happy Thanksgiving. And we will catch up soon. Perfect. Have a great holiday. Jesse Tarloff on The Guy Benson Show. Our happy hour continues next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Let's listen to just a little longer to this on the broadcast. That is Adele with her new song, I Drink Wine. 
selected, of course, by producer Christine. If you're listening on the broadcast, we were playing some of it. On the podcast, we can't use it. But her new album is 30. It is out today. The single that came out a few weeks ago was Easy On Me, which I also really liked. I'm a fan of hers. I think she's really good. I think she's super talented. She's got that classic voice. I'm also someone who generally likes kind of piano music. Just the intro that we just heard there is exactly what I enjoy. And so she's got legions of fans. And people have been anticipating this new album for quite some time. It's called 30, as I mentioned. It is out today. I'm not enough of a fan of hers, though, apparently, because she had some big concert or some event on TV. Was it Sunday with Oprah or something? I had people texting me all this stuff. I had no idea it was happening. I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So maybe I'm, I'm like a C-plus on my Adele fandom. But I will be checking out the album. I will be listening to it. And perhaps with a glass or two, maybe even three, of wine based on that song from 30 and Adele. Happy Hour continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we are back on the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show, earlier in the program, Andy McCarthy was back here former federal prosecutor reacting to the verdicts up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, not guilty on all charges against Kyle Rittenhouse. We got Andy's analysis. Here's part of it. Well, you and I started to talk about in our last discussion earlier in the week, Wednesday, the possibility of a hung jury and a possible mistrial. You wrote a piece about that. It seemed like those theories were really starting to proliferate and build when the jury was yet again sent home after a day of deliberation with with no verdicts. People really started to think, oh, you know, maybe they are deadlocked. Maybe we're not going to get a verdict. And then we did. Acquittals across the board. Just give us your overall thoughts on what happened today, the outcome of this case, and perhaps why you think it took so long. Well, Guy, I'm delighted by the result just because I think it was a not only that it was a just verdict, but I think it, we should all be relieved that the jury resolved this case rather than putting a hot potato back in the judge's lap, which I think would have happened if the jury had not resolved the case. Uh, I was obviously wrong in thinking that there would be a hung jury. With each passing hour, I was more convinced of that uh, because it was a fairly straightforward case, a short trial, a finite trial record, really one intermixed legal and factual question to be decided, which was did uh, Kyle Rittenhouse have a valid self-defense claim on the facts of the case? And it really came down, even by the prosecutor's theory, to what happened in the first confrontation, because they argued that if uh, he was in the wrong on the first confrontation, that everything else, the cascade of other events that followed, uh, he would be wrong with respect to those uh, two. So that's really what the jury had to home in on. Uh, I thought that was a kind of a question that even if you gave it respectful attention, it could be resolved in a few hours. So for it to take over 30 hours, um, I don't think you could reasonably not uh, envision the possibility that there were jurors who simply were not deliberating. That is, that they were refusing to resolve the case based on 
outside uh, pressure or intimidation. The one thing that always pushed back against that guy is that we never got a note from the jury that said they were deadlocked. And typically when a jury hangs, uh, you get a note or two toward the end where they inform the court that they're at an impasse and they just can't resolve it. That right, and the judge happened. says, no, like, you know, try harder, right? That often happens. You, right. You've got to give it a, right. And that never happened in this case. No, it never did. So, uh, and, you know, maybe I should have given more uh, attention to that, but I did expect that we were going to hear that today. And I was uh, delighted when it turned out that they had a verdict. And I think I want to repeat the one thing that I I hope I've been clear on, Guy, and that is there's kind of a juxtaposition between what we invest in trials and what we get out of them. You know, trials are very important. Uh, We we as we saw in this one, they get larded with people's uh, baggage as far as politics and and uh, and the like is concerned. But we also rely on them to air out all of the uh, what seem to be the important uh, issues around an event. Uh, it becomes our historical record of what happened. But in the end, what gets resolved is really a very narrow issue, which is, did the state have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to support the charges that they brought against Kyle Rittenhouse? And they, it, it turns out that they didn't. But that doesn't resolve, you know, why was there unrest on the streets? Did he belong on the street? Should he have had a gun? You know, all of these great questions that I don't I don't mean to suggest that they're important. I, in fact, I'm trying to argue exactly the opposite. They're extremely important. They're worthy of our consideration, but they don't get resolved by the trial. One question that I've gotten from people, they kept asking me, what do you think is going to happen? And my honest answer was, you never know, but I think the jury is going to take their time. They want to be thorough. They really want to give the appearance of thoroughness. Like, you know, this is not just some you know quick, a quick deliberation and a slam dunk because they knew how charged everything was. My full interview with Andy McCarthy, our colleague at Fox News and former federal prosecutor available online. GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the podcast, free every day, the entire show, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch on this Friday, producer Christine has announced something to her family involving Thanksgiving in her home. It is the latest affront to decency from producer Christine when it comes to the holidays, and we will hash that out next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday from Chicago. I'm Guy Benson. I'm in town. I'm going to the Northwestern football game at Wrigley Field, home of the Cubs, tomorrow. Cats taking on Purdue. I am not optimistic. How could you be after what has already been a 3-7 and seven season? And the Boilermakers are pretty good this year. So hoping for the best, expecting less than the best. Let's put it that way. I did see the Cats win in basketball last night. Improving to four and zero, oh. team looking pretty good, but uh, they've got some better opponents upcoming in the next four games. So we'll learn more about whether or not my Wildcats on the hardwood are for real this year or not. I think it's uh, too early to tell. In the meantime, as we are broadcasting here from the windy city where it is nice and chilly, not quite as cold as it was yesterday, I am anticipating with great excitement 
next week and Thanksgiving. And we'll have some good Thanksgiving-related programming for you, as you might imagine. I'm excited for family to come in. As Jessica asked me earlier, uh, we'll be hosting this year, which is uh, a big honor and also a challenge. I'm looking forward to it. Adam's done some uh, preemptive preparations already and some grocery shopping. I hope that some of these shortages don't hit us because we're doing as much as we can in advance. But some food, I mean, you can't get it super far in advance, right? You have to go fresh basically week of. So that's the game plan here, at least. And as I say all the time, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. So as we creep closer and closer, six days out now, I get more and more excited and the anticipation builds. And one of the reasons that we have a battle on this show, often in the home stretch in this segment, between myself and producer Christine, is because she is constantly celebrating the next holiday or the next season too soon. Like, year-round, she she makes these same mistakes. It's especially uh, egregious to me, and I feel more aggrieved than usual when it comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas, where she's you know wanting to put up her blow-up Santa and play Christmas carols. Basically, Halloween night. And my argument is, let's just wait. In fact, I was on the Peloton. Cody Rigsby, who has advanced to the finals of Dancing with the Stars, he's one of the instructors at Peloton. He's one of the contestants this season on Dancing with the Stars. I, I haven't really watched. I'm rooting for him you know, from a distance. But he made the point correctly that the Christmas people need to just hold their horses until after Thanksgiving. And I could not agree more. Producer Christine disagrees, fine, whatever. She says, no, we still celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a good holiday, and we just sort of pause the Christmas stuff for a day. Except, does she really celebrate Thanksgiving, the most American of holidays? I don't know anymore, because she has revealed to us privately and has now told her whole extended family that they are simply not really going to cook a Thanksgiving meal this year. And the central item on a Thanksgiving table will not be available in producer Christine's home this year. Producer Christine, what decision have you made? What mistake have you made? No mistake. I actually think it's genius. And you're wrong. I'm going to have all the fixings. I'm going to do the lasagna, the antibast, everything beforehand. No, No, those are not Thanksgiving things. Yes, they are. No, antibast and lasagna are not thanksgiving dishes they are in my home and a a lot of people that probably live in northern new jersey new york brooklyn staten island do we have to do do we have to do a twitter uh poll on this one i feel like we have we've done it uh no we've done a gravy related one where you call gravy marinara sauce or red sauce i call gravy what everyone else calls gravy, and you got absolutely blown out in that poll. Mm. So if you want to get blown out in another poll, I'd be happy to set that up. Would you like us to do that? I'm good. I'm good. I think I know I win, so it's okay. But Mm. back to the main, main meal. I really don't know that many people that truly enjoy the turkey part of Thanksgiving. And let's be honest, like it is such a a process to make sure this bird – is, you know, not dry. You got to get up early in the morning. 
So Bobby and I just decided, you know what? We're hosting 11 people. Uh, let's just make, let's call it now. We're making prime rib. We're doing a prime rib. And can I tell you, everybody was fine with it. There was just one person. Just yes, one. one person. One person. First of all, everyone was fine with it, so they say. Right? Because ultimately they want to be nice house guests and they don't want to be rude. But I guarantee you there are some silent objectors to this. Being like, oh, no turkey at Thanksgiving? Yeah, that's cool. But deep down they're like, what? Why did we agree to this? Should we bring our own turkey? There are people unhappy about it. The only one who has the guts to say anything is truly the hero of your household, I have to say. Just over and over again, she never fails to disappoint. Your sweet daughter, Megan, yet again knows what's up. What did she tell you? She really wants turkey at Thanksgiving, and she said she didn't understand why we were not providing that for her and her family, Mm -hmm. considering that is what she learned at school is the Thanksgiving feast. She is actually a, a pilgrim in the play. In the Thanksgiving play on Wednesday. So, she, you know, they've done a lot about Thanksgiving and she doesn't understand if that's what the, the Indians and the pilgrims came together and feasted on why we wouldn't do that. So, um, yeah, we, we kind of just ignored her. We just said, don't don't worry about it. We'll figure something out. Well, she's right. And good for her uh, for standing up to this. And I mean, look, it's almost. I almost want to call this un-American, where you're going to have prime rib instead of turkey, lasagna. I mean, it's, look, we know that allegedly back in the 80s in your, you know, jazzercise days where you were doing all those aerobics and everything competitively, you were moonlighting, allegedly, as a Soviet spy, and sometimes you sort of give the game away. You let the mask slip a little bit. For example, on the most American of all holidays, you just, it's like you got a little secret bulletin from Moscow being like, replace the turkey. And you're like, da, da. And you just do it. And it's a giveaway. And you think that we're not on to you anymore. But we are. That's point one. Point two, and this is what Jesse Toloff was saying was happening with her family. They are doing an and situation. We're going to have the traditional real Thanksgiving feast, turkey and potatoes and gravy and all that stuff. And then also on her husband's side, you know, the, the Italian side, they're going to have the big Italian feast with the meatballs and pastas and all of that. You could do that. You could offer turkey and beef, prime rib in this case, but you are eliminating turkey altogether. And You say, oh, people don't always love the turkey. It takes some extra effort to do it right. I understand that. But I think that Bobby's a good cook. He can make that happen. And you can serve this other stuff that people prefer 364 days a year. One day a year calls for turkey, and it is Thanksgiving. And depriving yourselves and especially your guests of turkey on Thanksgiving to me is I don't want to overstate it. So I'll just, I'll be very careful, very ginger, almost forgiving here. And I will call it merely a disgraceful abomination. You really went easy on me, didn't you? I did. Is that a call back to our Adele segment? (laughs) Guy, I think, okay. 
maybe we we could probably debate the lasagna a little more, and maybe you would win that. But I think actually a lot of I'm not going to bet you, but I think a lot of people actually would agree with me. Um, I'm presenting a meat. It's not a turkey. I'm going to have you know uh, the do that for Christmas. Do that for Easter. Do that for Christmas Eve. Or have your prime beef and turkey. Oh, yeah, I this mean, reminds that, but... me. Remember, we had we had a colleague a few years ago, leading up to July Fourth, if you recall, who confessed that on July Fourth they ordered Chinese. This has a similar energy to it, and I love no. Chinese food. I have Chinese food all the time. Yes, it's like snacking on some shrimp lo mein on July Fourth. To me, is similarly outrageous to ditching turkey on Thanksgiving over the desires of your own daughter and the lessons that she's learning about America in school. So you don't want critical race theory taught in school. You want critical Russia theory taught in school. That's my theory. I don't know how you got Bobby to go along with it. You that's know the what? only th- that's the most disappointing part of this. You know me. who else I got Bobby... to, to go along with this? Judgy oh. Joyce. Super excited, which, oh, by the mm. way, I have to say, you do have some competition now. Um, as as she, we've talked about, she always has said you are a very good-looking guy and goes on and on whenever she sees you on TV. But, oh, she has fallen for Tucker Carlson. Boy, oh, boy. And she really enjoyed him on your show. And she said, well, oh, you know what, Chris? That guy. He gets me going. I really like him. I was like, oh, my. Tucker? Well, yes. look, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to compete with Tucker. I'm not sure I want to compete with Tucker there. Just, you know, Judgy Joyce, she can maintain whatever crush she wants on, on Tucker. And uh, hopefully she can watch his show and listen to this one, right? It's like she can have prime rib and turkey. You don't have to just pick one. And in this case, we're calling the Guy Benson show, the show that you produce, the turkey here which you have eliminated from your Thanksgiving plate, your Thanksgiving table. I am just appalled, as I often am, but more so than usual. I'm not necessarily angry. I'm just so disappointed and not really terribly surprised based on some of those, you know, Soviet connections there. I will mention that the Tucker interview that we did earlier in the week was 1.3 million views on YouTube and counting. So people can check that out. I actually wrote it up today at townhall.com. So I want to get that plug in as well. We are out of time on this Friday. Christine, I want you to spend the weekend thinking about what you've done, the decision that you've made. There is still time to reverse course and to correct this. I mean, it's just, you can even get a small thing, even like get a a big, like maybe like a, a half turkey, like one of the breasts and then one of the turkey legs. So at least your poor daughter can have some turkey on Thanksgiving, like an American. And if your other guests want to avoid that poultry, that's their business. I think it it needs to be in the offing. It needs to be an option. It will be the featured protein at the all-American Thanksgiving feast at the Benson household. I promise you that. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bonus Benson free on the podcast coming up this weekend. Back here on Monday from D.C., it's the Guy Benson Show. Enjoy the next few days off.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.